0: And welcome back to the Brothers Book Club podcast. We're here with a book review episode. This is a recommendation show and an overview of a work of literature. We are still deep within the Penguin Literary Classics, or I guess Little Black Classics collection. This is a collection of 80 pieces of world literature that Penguin compiled into small little volumes. And we're here reviewing all 80 of them. We are on episode 59 today, that is by Oscar Wilde, the sort of famous humorist satirist i guess you could say an irishman and we have here lord arthur seville's crime or Savile. we're debating the pronunciation for the show uh we might change that throughout who knows joining me today is podcast what do we settle on intrepid podcast wanderer amanda Mm
1: -hmm. ponderer i think think is what we said ah the old
0: podcast ponderer that's right (laughs) I think, yeah, I do remember this from episode 58. We and I mispronounced it and then I made a bad joke. We could recycle all of those things here and now, but we won't. We're going to just move right ahead and forge ahead. <laughs> Welcome back, though, Amanda. Good to have you on another review episode.
1: Yeah, I'm always happy to be here.
0: Do you have a history with Oscar Wilde you need to tell the audience about? Are you compromised going into this review? Are you biased?
1: <laughs> Very biased. I really enjoy no. Oscar Wilde. and Actually, I wrote... um I had to write an essay for uh, my entrance into um, my master's program, and I wrote it on mm-hmm. one of his fairy tales.
0: Oh, fantastic! Yeah, which, if ever there were a person to turn me around on fairy tales, it might be him. Because yeah. the Penguin Little Black Classics review, this series we're doing, has revealed my real strong disdain for fairy tales <laughs> and like fables, that kind of the whole the whole vibe, that mm-hmm. whole genre or genres. Yeah, I I have no long history with Oscar Wilde, but like most students who studied like literature for a while, just a casual appreciation. You know, you read the picture of Dorian Gray and maybe a couple other things and Mm -hmm. you know, he he's just generally considered to be a quite a sharp and witty writer. So we'll see if that holds up today in the review. We like to begin all of our review episodes with a one sentence simile review, something that I think maybe Oscar Wilde would applaud. A little creativity to start things off. <laughs> Amanda, as ever, and it, as is now ingrained tradition, you will go first. <laughs> <laughs> it's chiseled in stone. The prophecy has been written. And so nice. go ahead and start us off with your simile review.
1: Um, I said reading this is like watching a sarcastic adult talking to a teenager who's doing something illogical, but the teenager is still <laughs> defending the action anyway. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Just because it's like humorous from an outsider's point of view. You have like somebody that you agree with, right? You're like, yeah, that person's being totally ridiculous, but also you get the humor from it because the person is just like, the way that, that Oscar Wilde writes is very satirical. So it's great. Yeah.
0: And there's nothing more dangerous to wield with a teenager than sarcasm, just because you never quite know if they're the age to fully process it and you never mm-hmm. quite know what their previous exposure to it has been in yeah. their upbringing or their friend with their friends or family. And yeah, I, sarcasm was something I essentially completely abandoned when I was working with younger people. and even to this day, I mean I still you know tutor younger teenage kids or high schoolers. And yeah, I'm extremely cautious with sarcasm. Almost never am I sarcastic with them. It's very difficult because I'm otherwise pretty sarcastic. <laughs> yeah. It's a real challenge to turn that, <laughs> to, to like not flex the muscle or turn that off or whatever.
1: Yeah.
0: I think that fits though. It's the humor will come up in the quote section. I'm sure mm-hmm. my one sentence simile is that I thought it was the literary. It was like the literary equivalent of being in a stand-up comic set. It has sort of a flow and kind of a vibe to it, which I hopefully will define better later. And it obviously also has a lot of humor and kind of jokes as well. So if you're in for that tone and if you're in for that kind of sarcastic mockery, then this will definitely hit that. But I just think when you're at a, when you're immersed in a live performance of a, of a stand-up comic, you kind of just sink into it. And it has a bit of a, not hypnotic effect, but you really lose track of time. I mean, you're belly laughing a lot, presumably. So it's just kind of, time moves differently when you're laughing a lot, I, I guess is my point. And yeah. I just think that reading this had a bit of a flow. Uh, once you get the rhythm down that you know, basically basically the conclusion of every paragraph is a, a zinger of some variety. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, not, not everyone, but you, that's just kind of the general vibe of the thing. And so once you get into that and you get reading, the narrative just kind of pulls you in in that same way.
1: Yeah, and um, I had originally also come up with the idea of like uh, um a comedy skit But <laughs> then i saw that you did it but i would mm-hmm. like to add um with the comedy skit too it would be like the kind of comedian who is um somebody who makes commentaries on like um society so like more like the dave Chappelle type comedy rather than just like sure, yeah. blanket toilet humor um comedy mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it would be a bit of a... Now, granted, let's just jump into this and make connections then. I think the social conditions of this story aren't going to be the thing to connect. There's definitely a lot of commentary and there's political sort of class commentary in here, but it's the kind of level and it's detached enough from, from our current world, not only from country, but time period that I just don't know if it's that part would fully hold up as a connection, but I think there are other connections to be found though. What was the connection that you found?
1: Um, The connection that I made was the, I, the lack of insight and the questioning, the lack Mm -hmm. of questioning before jumping into an idea or ideal. Um, So there's like some, and perhaps it's like more like teenagers and, and younger folks and, and maybe even like some of the college age students who who jump into they learn this new idea. And before they, you know, kind of really learn about it and learn to question what they are being fed as far as like information, they just jump all over it and then come to find out later, like, oh, like I was misinformed or oh, like, right. that, that was just one context, I should have looked at another one. So the idea that I really jumped on was just going headlong into something without actually taking the time to really inform yourself beforehand.
0: Yeah, if there were any kind of structural fault I could find with this story, it would be that early, probably on like page 8 or 10 for me, so pretty early in the book. But the early turn, once there's this revelation and the main character, the, the Lord believes it so deeply, it's a pretty quick transition from him acting and believing one thing. And then all of a sudden he completely upends his entire life basically because Mm -hmm. of this one event. So it did feel, I'm not sure. And there is a paragraph or so of justification in there and some questioning. There's a lot of rhetorical questioning, but he does come across as kind of naive, maybe the point, but it also just felt a bit kind of silly in the moment. So Yeah. yeah, no, it's a great connection. Mine is just literary this week. I know I try and make my connections usually a bit broader societal, but This is just not – I just can't get away from this theme lately or this kind of – these motifs or something. I feel like a lot of the things I've consumed in quarantine have the determinism versus free will debate raging. Granted, this is a common – philosophically speaking, this idea is quite old, and there's nothing new about debating whether you think – you know certain actions are predetermined or whether we all have free will this is you know again that's not a new conversation and it's a perfectly fine one in literature i just think like i watched the show devs this year did you watch devs i haven't okay it's an fx like s- kind of high concept very moody sci-fi show it's the from the guy who made annihilation and ex machina oh. I, don't, I don't know if you've seen those
1: i have yeah i've seen ex machina very
0: yeah. Stylistically, very consistent with that. A very moody synth music kind of blaring at times. It's It has, a I thought, a really beautiful portrayal of San Francisco in this kind of creepy way. As the tech firms, we learn more, become ever creepier. But anyway, so I thought it was a great show. Maybe not a perfect show, but pretty great. But anyway, in that show, it's essentially, they tell you in the first maybe three episodes, the characters couldn't be more explicit. They're just standing there debating free will with each other. It's just right. like, it's the explicit theme of the show. It's not even really implied. Um, Game of Thrones dealt with this too, though that show is a bit older, but like there's prophecies in that show. So there's always questions of, oh, was that, was that character doomed to that fate? Or whether it was a destiny, was it something else? Mm-hmm. I also watched a movie last weekend, Palm Springs. It's like a... This is a light spoiler in the first 10 minutes, but it's a time loop movie, so it's kind of a got a Groundhog's Day premise, but characters in that end up questioning whether they're stuck doing something or whether they can get out and have free will. Anyway, ju- this is all just to say, this trope or this common theme that stories like to explore, it is here as well, explicitly the, the core of the work, and there's a lot of other things going on, but... I just think, yeah, maybe it's because I read a lot of genre stuff. Maybe it's because in sci-fi there's a lot of time travel stories or, you know, fantasy. It's like every fantasy story has to have a prophecy. Uh, hopefully it doesn't have to, but they often do. All right. And so these questions, I think, recur a lot, and it's a strong thematic connection. It's something that when you read this, at least, I think, to, to a modern consumer of stories in whatever form or fashion, it'll jump out as feeling kind of, I don't know, like ever, ever relevant. So that was my connection. Let's jump into some fun. quotes. I think we've talked around this. We've danced around this enough. We'd really like to give a bit of a deep dive in this section and give a sense of the author's style, stylistic decisions, and rhetorical elements, things that made the reading interesting or perhaps not. Amanda, well, do you want to start us off with a quote today? I feel like I always do. I don't I don't want to. I'm just going to continue to make you start <laughs> with all the, all the segments. Just go ahead. You know, it's, it's Amanda's leading the charge. Oh, my. Um... Yeah. yeah, no pressure. No pressure.
1: So uh, let's see here. One of the ones that um, I chose was, uh, he, he mentioned Hamlet a couple of times in this um, story. And he, this is something mm-hmm. that Wilde does actually in, in many of his um, literary works, which is he makes a literary reference, but he kind of plays with it so that it's, it's not... Like he's trying to sound, um, like arrogant about his knowledge. It's more like he just like takes something that a lot of people would know the reference to and just kind of like twists it and has fun with it. So, yeah, yeah. um, from chapter one, I chose the one that said, Our Guildensterns play Hamlet for us, and our Hamlets have to jest like Prince Hal. The world is a stage, but the play is badly cast. So, here there's even a famous quote from, um, is it? I yes, Hamlet, and so the world is a stage, and then he twists it and said the play is badly cast, which I thought was was excellent, and it just shows his kind of wit and and his playfulness with um, a lot of ideas.
0: Yeah, playfulness is probably the the apt word there for sure. Every time. And again, I said this earlier, I don't mean to mean it literally, though it could maybe be literal. It seems like every time you're approaching a paragraph end here, you can expect a bit of wit from him or a bit of a turn or some playful phrase or yeah, some kind of twist on something you may be expected, but he delivers it with a kind of sharpness that's really admirable. I I too pulled a quote about Hamlet. Do you want me to jump into that one? Yeah, that'd be
1: perfect.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Perfect connection between us here. Um, Yeah. I pulled one from my page 23. It said, Fortunately also for the, for Lord Seville or for him, he was no mere dreamer, no, or idle dilettante. He had been, uh, oh, sorry. I'm blocking my own eyesight with my mic. (laughs) There we go. We're keeping (laughs) this in people. This is not getting edited out. Uh, he had been so, or had he been so he would have hesitated like Hamlet and let irresolution mar his purpose, but he was essentially practical. Life to him meant action rather than thought. He had the rarest of all things, common sense. It's such a fastball for Wilde. It has and by that I mean just a common it's a really common couple of sentences that just execute everything well for him. It seems like this is his reliable writing zone. We've got something literary, it has that Hamlet illusion, but it doesn't feel stuffy. And also there's a kind of ironic twist to it because ah, this is gonna be a tough one to dance around. We try not to spoil things in the reviews, and I don't want to here, especially because this is actually a plot heavy story that has actual like plot twists worth waiting for sort of. Um, So anyway, I'll just say that that comparison won't hold up very well, That that comparison is interesting, but not it's, there's a twist there too. So it's, it's not just what you'd expect. And I think it it has that end of sentence turn where he's talking about common sense, but if you know what's going on in the narrative, the, the, main characters acting really recklessly in this moment and is (laughs) not being critical in in any way. And in fact is uh, going ludicrously out of his way to do uncommon, maybe even heinous (laughs) things. And so I, yeah, it's just at every level it's a dig and it, it has good characterization that feels kind of understated, but is still funny and fun and makes the, you know, main character seem maybe not cruel, but certainly like ludicrous or out of his mind. I think yeah. it just has so much going on. It's playful, like you said. I think that's probably the best quick summation of it.
1: Yeah, it's and it's it's when you start using some literary references like that, some allusions, you you can often run into the problem of like getting into cliches, especially when they want to run that allusion throughout the rest of their story and kind of all these metaphors that have been like used in other pieces of writing and stuff like that. But Oscar Wilde keeps his writing really fresh by by introducing those twists into those metaphors later on as well. So you have the fear of the cliché, right. but actually he completely avoids being clichéd at all.
0: Yeah, yeah, certainly. I think illusions can become cliché, there's no doubt. Those, or at least, at the very least, they can become stale. Mm. You can only reference... I, I, yeah, I, was, I was about to say the Bible. That's not court controversy here. I guess the Bible is kind of a timeless thing to, to allude to. Maybe something like Dante, though, or like Milton, or, you know, people that really took that iconography or Christian ideas or Christian kind of images and, you know, it, it's like how many times can we refer to Cerberus or something, you know? right. or Greek mythology, Romans up there too. And so anyway, to do it in a way that feels funny or fun or even fresh. Very admirable. I think it worked out well. I'll throw another quote in then that ties into the one I just gave. It's just another example of comedic timing and showing kind of a funny, this one that has more of a narrative purpose to it too, though. Um, It's when, a dangerous device, we'll say, is sent to a family for reasons I won't explain, um, but it's on page 43, and he, in a letter he's reading, it says, I don't think Papa likes it so much as he first did, though he is very flattered at being sent such a pretty and ingenious toy. It shows that people read his sermons and profit by them. And it's just such a hilarious line because you know, it's a bit of, I guess, what do they call that? Um, not audience irony. What's it called when the audience?
1: What's dramatic, this, dramatic irony.
0: There you go. Dramatic irony. And so we certainly are aware that that person should have was in literally a murder target. And I'll let you know, I'm not going to say how it turns out for that, the priest, but I'm just saying, we know that he was almost murdered. And instead this device humors him and he thinks it's a sign of his religious influence when really it's a murder tool. And there's (laughs) all kinds of levels of humor and irony going on. And then he also, at some point moves it into the room where the children are, which was not the intention. (laughs) Yeah. And of course that's where he, he thinks first to put it. And so Yeah, it just builds up such great narrative tension. It's a funny little twist. And, you know, as as far as kind of the structural components of the story, it's the only time the story has this letter put in because it's text taken from a letter. And again, it just shows that he's willing to, you know, maybe not be fully playful or avant-garde with his style, but he'll use something to be funny and then let it go. Again, there's no other letters in this tale and there don't really need to be. It's just this was the perfect time to convey it that way so it's just a really good structural twist
1: yeah i agree and it's the irony is like huge in a lot of oscar wilde's uh writing mm-hmm. and you've got like he uses all kinds of irony he's got the dramatic irony he's got the situational irony and he's got the verbal irony he's got all of it and yeah it, this scene too is just it's hilarious. It it actually got an actual chuckle out of me just because it was so funny. It was so especially the idea of like the kids having it in their room. It's like, wow. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> it's a gag, I think, and I wish I had a better brain for this kind of I wish I had a more catalog style brain for these kinds of references, but it's a gag that I'm certain I've seen in other movies where maybe like the kid's parents are assassins and they pick up their knife or f fun- You know, I'm sure it's been played for gags or, you know, a kid has something really dangerous and they're tossing it around and they drop it. Or I don't know. I feel like that's been in the Simpsons too, but oh,
1: yeah. yeah. Sure.
0: So you know, it's a, it's <laughs> a joke <laughs> it's that can be day. played up. Yeah. It's kind of a timeless, got a timeless humor quality to it, but it was done very well here. How about you, Amanda? Any other quotes jump out to you?
1: Yeah. Um, I think that another aspect of Wilde's writing that I really enjoy um, is that he's really great at characterization, but not yeah. having to really delve too deeply into um, the language Either. It's like his writing is very short and sweet. It reminds me a lot of um, when we read like Wharton and Ga- um, not Gaskell. Gaskell was the opposite. Um, Wharton okay. and um, Charlotte Perkins Gilman, where oh, everything yeah, is very briefly stated but beautifully written, and is, you're able to still get a really good sense of what the author is trying to say without them having to keep reiterating a particular point. Um, So one quote that I have is where he is describing, I believe it was the the Duchess um, or Mm -hmm. the Lady Windermere. I can't remember which one. Anyway, so they gave her face something of the frame of a saint with not a little of the fascination of a sinner. She had discovered the important truth that nothing looks so like innocence as an indiscretion. And by a series of reckless escapades, half of them quite harmless, she had acquired all the privileges of a personality. Mm-hmm. And that's from chapter one. So here we have a great characterization of this particular person where we get some insight, some gossipy insight. We know that she's had some scandals. We know that she's got a great personality, apparently. And we also know that she's really good looking and that she looks sweet and innocent, but that she's not really. So we get all that in, in just like, Two sentences essentially, right? Right. And right. Uh, but we also see some of his playfulness with language too, where a lot of his um, descriptions of people uh, they play on opposites. It seems like he he really loves um, oxymorons, right? But yeah, yeah. <laughs> but then they they still make sense, right? So she looks like the saint, but it still looks like a sinner, right? She's nothing looks like innocence as an indiscretion. All these things are opposites that he's playing off of. Um, and mm-hmm. and that's not just with characterization that he does that, but also in some of his um, statements about society and stuff like that, he also plays with opposites a lot.
0: Yeah, certainly. And I think in that specific quote, it's almost like this is the closest we could probably get to ascribing Wilde's own description of himself with the, how you have to, it's a privilege to have a personality because you have to be an interesting, maybe even a bit flamboyant of a person. You have to be a lived in person, you know, kind of have a bit of a wild streak to have that right to say (laughs) I'm actually interesting and I'm not just a, kind of stuffy society person, which I believe is a notion or a kind of social class that he rebelled against his whole life. I, I've never studied his life in depth or really even his works. Again, I've only had passes at it, but that seems like something that he would kind of rebel against. It seemed like a perfect quote to, for him to put in yeah. <laughs> as if to describe himself. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, you yeah. should definitely read up on his life. He had a very interesting life. <laughs>
0: Yeah, that's his casual reputation among people like me who know the name and then can give you a quick reference or two. And that's, and that's basically, and give you a, you know, it's like, I know the one sentence encyclopedia version about him. Mm -hmm. That's basically what you would know is that he was a pretty controversial figure in high society wrote a lot of satire and critique of that type of person and wrote a really famous novella. So (laughs) that's where my knowledge stops other than now I've read this. So now I feel like I've deepened and I I paid a lot more attention to this style here. So I feel like that, that also helps. Yeah. Let me throw in my final quote then just because it is such a difference between the others. It's, I didn't want to leave the reader or the, sorry, the listener rather feeling that this was exclusively humorous or that it was even, I don't even know if I would call this a comedy or comedic short story, honestly. I mean, I think it is mostly that, but it has some harsher notes and some satire that is more biting. Mm -hmm. Um, And it has moments. I think this is a quote about the setting that I thought was just quite effective and gives off. It kind of switches the tone at the right moment. At any rate, it's kind of towards the end on page 45. It says, Then he wandered down the Thames embankment and sat for hours by the river. The moon peered through a mane of tawny clouds as if it were a lion's eye, and innumerable stars spangled the hollow vault like gold dust powdered on a purple dome. And then a barge floated away with the tide, and the railway signals changed from green to scarlet as the trains ran shrieking across the bridge. Then the railway lights went out, one solitary lamp left gleaming like a large ruby on a giant mast, and the roar of the city became fainter. I think it it really is such a shift in tone and mood, and it gives such a striking feeling. It, It helps embody the, you know, obviously the character's own development and what they're feeling. So in that sense in just the simplest literary way. It's a really good use of setting. I could also frankly see somebody coming at that and thinking, it's just a bit overwritten. I, I think I tend to always, and I know we've covered this before, but you know, new listeners certainly don't know a lot about us. <laughs> I tend to favor overwriting rather than underwriting. Just as a general rule, obviously all things in moderation I think is the the real stylistic lesson. But and so I don't I don't find that, for example, to be overwritten because the images are different and striking enough and they add enough richness. They don't seem redundant per se. Some of them are beautiful. Some feel a little haunted and it kind of just gives, I think a more, I think overall the mood is clear. The tone is clear, but I think there's some subtleties to it that I really appreciated. And so, yeah, yeah. It just, and it also felt quite different than the rest of the story.
1: Yeah. I think this is a great quote to show that he's, he's got some real chops, to his um, his creativity and his writing um, ability. It's not just all laughs with him, but he can actually write really well and really beautifully and have uh, these haunting images that definitely create a mood for you and and is a reflection of how the character was feeling at the time. And just I think that it's, it's a clear indication that he is a great writer and not just a great mm-hmm. satirist, but also just generally a great writer.
0: For sure. It's and I think there it's it's pretty explicit and potent, but again, to me does not feel overwritten really. And it really it's it's a it's a paragraph that occupies a good chunk of a page, but you know, then it's on to there's some dialogue and then some really intense action. And so I don't think it overstays. We're we're not talking You know, that quote I pulled is most of that paragraph. We're not talking about you have to put up with four pages of that. It's not like he's not one to overstay, as you said earlier in the in the Perkins Gilman comparison, which is a trait that I'm finding you and I both admire. (laughs) Yeah. In in a writer.
1: Yeah. Well, especially for short story writing, right? Like I think that comes from our literary backgrounds is just we look for significance and significance means for a short story that it needs to be brief and to the point. Otherwise it would be a novel.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Otherwise just string it out and I'll go <laughs> along for that journey. Hopefully maybe. Well, yeah, I'm glad we agreed on that quote then. I, it, it did stand out, but it wasn't, uh, in a negative way. It just showed versatility. I think like you said, mm-hmm. any final quotes on Amanda, before we uh, move on to another segment.
1: Sure. Uh, this quote actually kind of ties into the, my literary corner suggestion. Oh, cool. Um, uh, <laughs> but it's from chapter 5 and it says but he had lost all faith in explosive and in spl- explosives and Herr Winkel Winkelkopf himself, <laughs> <yeah. laughs> um, himself acknowledged that everything is so adulterated nowadays that even dynamite can hardly be got in a pure condition. So here we have um the satire, right? a, a dig at society. Um but also this is just something that's so like Short, quick, to the point, great dig that sticks and sticks in your mind, and it's just so easily quotable, and it's just a great mm-hmm. like little drop of insight into Victorian um, England society for the time, and I just really enjoyed like and and he does that yeah. a lot throughout all of his writings really, but it's just uh, great.
0: Let's talk, let's do what you suggested. You're, you're taking the host chair now and I love it. (laughs) Let's segue that right into your literary corner. This is the part of the pod when we like to do some light literary education and teach you the listener, at least one small thing about literature and the study of it. Amanda, you chose epigram, which uh, is basically what you just read. Go ahead and tackle that for us. What is an epigram?
1: So an epigram is a pithy saying, or a short saying, uh, or remark, mm-hmm. expressing an idea in a clever and amusing way. So an ex- another example from the text is, no one cares about distant relatives nowadays. They went out of fashion years ago. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> these are quick, short jabs um, at society in general that are meant to be specifically very, very short and to the point, but also really entertaining. Yeah, And it's, it's a good way also for, um, writers who use epigrams, uh, it's it's a good way for them to drop in their own opinions and beliefs without them seeming really preachy, right? So, um, a couple of writers that we've talked about, um, in this podcast series so far, a couple of them have come off as kind of long-winded and preachy when they talk about their ideas, sometimes their ideas are just like thrown in there without, um, any like contextualization and they just seem to be, Oh, this is my writing and I'm just going to throw in what I want to throw in rather than yeah, kind of tying it into the story. But um, mm-hmm. epigrams tried to kind of get around that. And wild definitely uses that to his advantage.
0: I wonder if some readers would find it overbearing. Cause I, I did at times, And again, maybe that gets back to my hyperbole about every paragraph ending with something like this. Mm -hmm. But I think it did. I don't think it graded on me, though. I don't want to get into a negative kind of portraying this in a negative way or switch my tone or something. How I'm representing how I felt. I am just curious if certain this is basically an unanswerable question I'm just putting out there. But I do wonder if somebody would find it. Grading—it's almost like he's trying to one up himself. You, I could see somebody reading this feeling that way, like, "Oh, you're being too clever by half," you know. Like, what, you know, why are you doing this so incessantly? Mm -hmm. But then again, I, again, I didn't get fully that reading. I can imagine it though—a reader that prefers a certain maybe quieter type of literature—or again, if you're, if you're not here for humorous storytelling and that humorous tone, then this I think will be a big kind of a big miss. But yeah, yeah, I I enjoyed it a lot.
1: Yeah, that's a great. Here's my. Yeah, it's
0: it it is a bit intense at times. Yeah. My literary corner this week will be kind of brief because the lack of it is why I chose it, which it took me a minute to come up with this when I did some digging. I chose Hubris, which is a shortcoming or defect in a Greek tragic hero that leads him to ignore the warnings of the gods and to transgress their laws and commands. Eventually, Hubris brings about downfall and nemesis, as is the case of Creon in Sophocles' Antigone, which I only... That's literally what they chose as their example. That's great. The Penguin. I know, yeah, because we just covered that, by by the way, (laughs) if you're listening to this one fresh, we did an episode on Antigone, go listen to that. This, I think, would make a fascinating study, though, again, I don't want to say fully why, because it does require you to know how the story ends, and for a review episode, we're we're just going to abstain from talking about that for this one. Mm -hmm. And so I think, but there's just such a narrative drop-off at the end, where I think you could say hubris is or wasn't, and so, you know, it's not a Greek tragedy, but... I think if you apply some of those rhetorical expectations or genre expectations, it does beg some questions. And again, I think it would lead to a fascinating study. This would be a good if you were just like writing about hubris in Victorian short stories or yada yada. Pick your pick your prompt. But I think it would be make for a pretty good example of how that can be deployed or played with. I'm not sure if you felt that way about the ending, too, without saying what the ending is.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The ending was was Different, and I think that it was meant to. I think that he chose that ending uh, in order to kind of like highlight the main character's thought processes in a way mm-hmm. without trying to say anything beyond that. But, um, but yeah, and, and I think that this actually goes to your point that you made earlier about. Like the difficulty of placing this into a particular genre because it is kind of satirical, but it's not the main point of it. Doesn't seem to necessarily be satire, and it does have those serious right. points in the in the great like the quote that you you chose earlier, where there's some beautiful um, development in tone and and atmosphere and stuff like that. Is it seems to almost defy uh, expectations that you have um, if you. Yeah go in there thinking, oh, this is going to be a satire. Oh, this is going to be a mystery. Oh, this, you know, whatever.
0: Right, right. Or just some kind of, I guess this would get slotted in, you know, in terms of movie genres these days, this would be like a thriller, I guess. It kind of is a thriller in a way. It's a thriller with a lot of humor and satire in it. I think, again, too, the satire... Uh, To me, even I'm sure points about the high society uh, was lost and I bet it is a strong satire of many of those elements. But without a little guidance or without footnotes or whatever, I was I caught some of it. And then other parts, I'm sure, just went over my head, you know. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, the average reader, quote unquote, whoever that imaginary person is, ideally our listeners, uh, they they might miss some of that, too. But that's to be expected. You know, Google, as you will, feel free to search up some history on the story. Any final thoughts on the literary corner? I think we chose two interesting ones, and I, I know mine was almost like a bit of a tease, but I think if you're listening to this and you get intrigued enough to go read it, keep the idea of Huber's in mind, and then by the end, you'll probably have some thoughts on it, Yeah, ideally. Um, okay, let's move into the official review segment of the podcast, then we're going to do a two-parter as ever. First up, of course, the Russell French in memoriam. So what's good about it segment, this is when we just try and give genuine praise for at least one element of this story. I will go first, Amanda, I'm not going to put it all on your shoulders today. So I, I could, I guess, as the hosts. Yeah. I suppose I could, but I won't try not to be cruel about it. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I, well, sometimes it feels that way. Sometimes not. Uh, anyway, We've said so many positive things. I'll try not to belabor anything. I just thought the plot of this story moved so well. It felt the most modern. Definitely it felt the most modern of one we've read in what felt like a very long time. There are twists such as they are. There's actual tension and narrative stakes. There's clearly established kind of like scenarios with characters that have clear motivation. Um, it, it feels very recognizable. I think this for even a casual reader today would be fairly readable um, with some things that might miss them. But yeah, this premise is just absurd and fun. And I think we're societally pretty inundated with weird high concept ideas. And this was kind of that, but just in Victorian London, I think for them, it would have seen, seemed a bit absurdist or whatever. But yeah, the plot just moved well yeah how about for you, amanda? what was your what's good about it?
1: The plot was definitely great. Um, what I really enjoyed about it was that uh, he's succinct. He's insightful. He's funny. and he is unique in his writing. It, there's nothing cliched about what he does.
0: Yeah, yeah, certainly. And if it if there are do appear to be clichés, don't be surprised if there was actually some kind of subversion and you maybe just missed it or didn't <laughs> didn't think about it as much or something cuz it does feel quite fresh and original uh at almost every turn. Let's begin with official ratings then. This I will allow you to take first because oh. I had foreseen this. I saw this in the tea leaves as they say. <laughs> A a joke that no one will understand because we talked about that before we started recording. So, as always, I'm just crushing it over here.
1: (laughs) I got you. That's all that matters. Yeah, right. True, (laughs) true. That's fair. Um, I, of course, gave this a three. Um, Yeah. I came in really hoping that I would be able to give it a three just because I'm a huge fan of Wilds. um, And I was so Mm -hmm. happy with the result. So, yes, um, definitely going to give it a three. Um, For all the reasons that I listed with the what's good about it segment. And I just think that in general, if anybody has the opportunity to read Oscar Wilde, whether it's this story or, or his fairy tales or his plays, or he even wrote poetry, right? Anything. Okay. Yeah. I've never encountered any. Yeah. He, he he was a prolific, just writer. Like (laughs) he tried Mm -hmm. everything. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And They even like there's several different versions of importance of being earnest. um, My favorite being the one with Colin Firth and um, Rupert Everett. And it's he's just hilarious. And even though he was writing about Victorian um, England, I think that some of the jabs at humanity as a whole. right? Right. I think that that's still really relevant. I mean, he talks about like, uh, radicals and like radicals versus the conservatives. And he talks about like the um, ideas for gender, right? Gender um, roles and mm-hmm. stuff like that. He just pokes fun at everything that, that even today uh, seem relevant. So it, it, which is surprising for somebody who wrote back in like the 1800s.
0: <laughs> yeah, certainly. No. And I think you can trace some political divides in certain Certainly not parties for the most part, but certain ideological divides, you know, we've moved on from some, but I think it, that that stuff can connect and can be relevant too. I though I'm glad you said all that because I can't speak to broader trends in his work or themes or like leitmotifs across his work or whatever. That's not I cannot speak on that. So okay, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, I will concur with the three, which I should have said right away and forgot to again. Sorry for all you new listeners out there. A three just means you must read this three is our must read score. A two would mean maybe, and a one would mean don't read. It's a simple three-point system. I'm also going to go with a three, though I hesitated maybe for a split second on that, but I I feel very strongly, having talked with you about it now, I, again, leave it kind of up in the air at times for these reviews. I think a three is best just because of the craft, and I think at the end of it, I appreciate it above all else, just a well-contained Crisp, sharp, fast moving plot driven story that had depth and wit, and it was just a fun read. It was enjoyable. I think this is one that would be best enjoyed in one sit down session. I read it in two parts, but I think it it has the pace and flow to just read it in one sitting. I think it would make for a great afternoon, a little bit of just enjoyment, a well-told story that's funny. And yeah, come for the wit and wordplay, you will not be let down, I think. It's, yeah. He's known as a master of those things for an absolute reason. The The reputation is clear, even in this short story. So I think a three on many accounts for me, maybe the primary of which is if you don't know anything about him, this is a very low stakes, quick read to get you into his style and into his world of of literature and writing. And it's as good a probably entrance as any. Yeah. Yeah. I think a, a solid three for me. I, the only reason I hesitated, I think initially was what I mentioned earlier, which is just that the the sheer volume of, of wit can honestly bog you down at times. Like it's almost exhausting to be around people who, and I weirdly in real life, I can be guilty of this too. Just something about me just always wants to crack jokes, which annoys even me when I'm sitting there doing it, you know, at like a dinner party. I'm like, God, it's annoying to be the person who's always doing that or whatever. But yeah. So at any rate it, that, that can kind of drag a bit, but I don't think it does here. I just think, I, I guess I was imagining somebody who would find it exhausting to read.
1: Yeah, I can I can definitely see if somebody um somebody might pick this up and just think, "Oh my gosh, the sheer like arrogance of the guy to think that he can, you know, make all these like commentaries and like the the one-upmanship of himself in a lot of ways." Mm-hmm. But yeah. If you know his life, right? if you've studied some of um his what he was like as a person, it's it's not a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> he mm-hmm, was mm-hmm. very flamboyant and uh right, right. To, um, to be the center of attention and just be gaudy and just out, just completely out. And he right. enjoyed life to the fullest. And I think that that is uh, definitely clear in his writing. And, and it might be grating to some people, but I really appreciate it. And I just think that he had uh, such a wonderful way of writing.
0: For sure. To put it um, in pretty fine words, he had the privilege of personality and it showed through in this story, it showed through in his writing style. So I'm just going to do my best. The best thing I can do is just steal one of his own turns of phrase, which I now quite enjoy. Well put. Next week. No, thank you. Yeah, I've I've learned from the best, I think, as we've concluded. <laughs> next week we have another book review coming up of course we march on uh, undeterred from our mission to finish these 80 uh, we've got shen fu coming up next week it's a, it's a short story the old man and the moon so far amanda has not been able to find it which has not slowed us down before but we'll see if we can find that for her or might be a solo episode maybe ryan will return i make no promises but we'll see what happens As always, folks, thanks for listening. Follow us on Instagram at The Stumped. That's where we post most of our updates. We also have a Facebook page under The Brothers Book Club Podcast if you're so inclined. And if you've just activated or deactivated your Facebook account, respect. What are you going to do? That's I understand. (laughs) 2020, y'all. It's confusing times. All right. Talk to your grandparents. (laughs) And uh, until next time, we will see you between the classics.